Welcome to Innovation Nation on Career Buzz, Canada's unique radio conversation that empowers lives, enriches careers, and energizes organizations. Welcome to Innovation Nation on Career Buzz. Hi, I'm Stephen Armstrong, and I'm pleased to be your host today on Innovation Nation on Career Buzz. Innovation Nation explores the intersection of the real world business practice and people's career development. We explore how individuals turn their personal passion for innovation into tangible commercial success. Thank you for tuning in this morning. The topic today is if we want our projects to succeed, we need to make project management disappear. Project management is the use of specific knowledge, skills, tools, and techniques to deliver something of value to society. And there are many examples, the development of software for improving a business process, the construction or building of an aircraft or, or a building or a housing development, etc., or delivering relief after a natural disaster and in fact, even in managing your week-to-week -week or day-to-day -day or month-to-month -month or year-to-year -year personal household activities, project management applies to that. Now, in 1969, the Project Management Institute was established in the United States to advance the project management skill and to professionalize project management as a formal body of knowledge. Since then, tens of thousands of people get certified as project management professionals each year. But the question we're going to ask today, is project management truly a profession or is it a skill? Which is it or is it both? Is it time to th rethink the project management role in organizations? T today's guest believes so. We're joined by Steve Wick from London, England, and Steve is no doubt about this, a recognized global expert in project management. He's also a trailblazer in advancing project management as a skill for everyone. He has been based in the UK most of his life. Steve is chairman of the Management Standards Committee of the British Standards Institution, responsible for project and program and portfolios. He was also chairman for the Association for Project Management in the United Kingdom, when they were awarded their Royal Charter. He works with the UK government as a cabinet officer advisor. He also 
engages as an SME or subject matter expert with international bodies and academia, and he's a chief examiner and trainer in planning and the concept of earned value management. He also works with the OECD, I think that's the Organization for Economic and Commercial Development, and the City of London to introduce employability skills internationally to children aged 7 to 70 plus. Steve's long passion for all kinds of music is still matched by his continued appreciation for silence. He holds a higher national diploma in business studies, and then he earned a Master of Arts degree in Manpower Sociology and Psychology of Organizations at the London Polytechnic University of Westminster. Steve, welcome to the show. Hello, good to be here. I should also add, Steve, that Steve, Steve's daughter, Stephanie Wick Edwards, is an internationally recognized meso-soprano, and she was on my show in December or January of 2020, early 2023, and that's his daughter. So Steve's appreciation for music created a daughter who's now a global star in opera. Right, Steve? Well, yes, she is. More down, nothing to do with me, more down to her than anything else. And she is, I do agree, a far better singer than I am. Okay, well, your world is project management. Steve, your title actually is controversial, with, will be controversial, not toward the masses of project managers, but mm -hmm. toward the institutions who, who regulate yeah. or, or formalize project management. Why did you say project management should disappear as a function within corporations? Well, it's a conclusion that I've reached gradually over the years. So it has been a journey and I'm kind of 40 years into that journey now. But I could counter one of the things that the project management organisations, the professional bodies that represent projects or those sections within the professional bodies that have a project management interest their rationale for becoming a profession was that it was pan sector no specific profession had a claim to project management and by its very everywhereness ubiquitousness it kind of argued that it had its own independent life and that you could if you were a project manager you go anywhere and plan and organize and manage anything within any sector and to a degree, I did agree with that and did subscribe to that thinking that it was very much a set of skills that, that could be applied universally. But having got to the stage where we reached and achieved professional recognition as a unique profession, I think almost immediately, or I'd already reached the conclusion that the reason that it's pan sector is that because it's the skills that we employ are those skills that everybody possesses to a greater or larger degree and does to a greater or larger degree in their everyday work. We've all got the possibilities for planning, organising projects, whether that's our own life or working within a group or a team, sorting out our holiday. Again, to reference the PMI and their Pulse of the Profession report, the most significant one I think that they ever produced maybe a good 10 years ago now, talking about what the skill, the success factors 
for projects were and that the top key skill for the success in projects was communication. Communication isn't confined to projects, it's a human skill. And the better that we converse, communicate, collaborate with each other, these are all human bits and pieces. So my contention is that I don't need a badge or a certificate or a course of study or a professional credential to be good at doing projects, at managing projects. And I certainly don't need to be called a project manager to do that. I really believe that it's a, a set of skills. And one of the dangers is that by separating the deployment of project management into somebody called a project manager, it's kind of an abdication of responsibility. And it's leaving all of those organisational skills to, to a separate individual, rather than, my vision would be, that the entire board or the entire workforce knows all about how to manage things and use them and shouldn't be calling in a separate sector to do that with. Now, I'm not saying that the intermediate steps of, of having interest groups or organisations that created project management shouldn't be there, but I see them very much, if we move along, as I hope we will, into the future, that their role will change and that their nature will be seen to have been transient. It will have been emphasising those skills that we deploy, that we call project management, but then reinserting them into the everyday and my my journey my trick which i'll get into talking to you about is how do i how do we go beyond the professional body to make project management go everywhere throughout society again final reminder before i give it back to steve is that the charitable objects as they're called the charity the apm the association for project management is a registered charity and its charity, its major charitable object is for is the practice of the art and science of project management for the public good. And I believe that we've got to a stage where that public good cannot be reasonably or logically carried out by a professional body in the state it is, because they tend to be inward rather than outward looking. Yeah. And so you're not going to hit society. You believe it should be embedded in everybody and every day practice? I think in some ways it's a question of discovery, Steve. It's yeah. a question of it's there, we have to bring it out. Okay. And we bring, but we can bring it out through other means. Yeah. Okay, talk about your background. Let's get a potted history of your background yeah. that potted led to these conclusions. Go ahead. Yes, potted history. I had what I would call was gold chip state education so came up through the standard uk state educational system didn't go to private school got what was called the 11 plus which got me into a selective what's called a grammar school and the grammar school was for the clever kids so the top seven or eight in terms of intelligence and iq test went to those in those days and we're talking about the 60s here the 1960s and that got me into a scrape of a pass into what was called a polytechnic in those days, Middlesex Polytechnic, and I studied business studies for three years, two of which was uh, study study up in, in London. So I moved away from my birth town of Eastbourne on the south coast of England up to the, the smoke, as we call it, into London. Two years of business studies study and a year, it was what was called a sandwich course. So there was a year's work experience in there and I was dispatched off to Paris and I ended up in the initially in the long-term planning department and then in the special exports department of Renault or Renault I think yeah. as they call it in yeah. the States 
to, to learn planning skills and I became fluent in French and I stayed working for Renault for three years. Came back because of a very unhappy girlfriend who wanted me to return to England. So we did and I returned on the basis that I would do a master's degree in what was called manpower, wouldn't be called manpower nowadays, but the, the, the sociology and psychology of organisations and theories of power and control at an organisational level, and finally the role and skills of the management consultant. So it was actually a very forward-looking degree. It actually twisted me from rote education, introduced me into what was called organisational analysis, and it, helped, it really made me think. And so in thinking, I became a far more reflective individual. Uh, it trained me how to think rather than just take in rote knowledge. So critical thinking. In those days, you could open the Sunday newspaper, the Sunday Times in London, when I finished my, my master's degree and successfully, and I looked for a job in the Sunday Times on a Sunday, and there was a job being the planning manager for a print works in North London, Tottenham, for those that maybe know football, it's the home of Tottenham Hotspur, the soccer club. It was four miles walk from where I lived in North London, so I applied for the job and got it and spent three years running a closed union shop, Sogat Union, printworks in North London with 400 printers and many big, huge press machines in there. At the end of three months, three years, I was given the gift of we want to computerise the company over four sites, rather like what we call nowadays an ERP system, an enterprise mm -hmm, and mm -hmm, system. And I was given the job of project manager. So for the next three years, I put in with, with zero knowledge a translation of what we did into a computer system, which got me to the extent that I knew that I'd won when the finance director used to come on his own and shout at me about the way the project was going badly, to the extent that he used to come with about seven or eight people towards the end because I had the power to turn the, computer, the, the company on and off. Nobody knew more than I about how you ran what was called an FMCG company in those days, a fast-moving consumer goods company. Yep, 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 yep. Street. So at the end of that, I jumped ship, went to work for a company called Triad, in, based in the centre of London, who were all into cell manufacturing. I'd also picked up an interest in Goldratt's book, The Goal, for those of you that may know about that. It's about the theory of constraints and critical chain. I was beginning to develop an interest in how you manage about project management but without really realising it. I developed a couple of shop floor data collection systems within this company, and then it went bust. I got made redundant, but picked up a job at the underground, and I became the project manager on the creation from, from scratch to ultimate execution of the maintenance software that maintained the entire London Underground system. Yes, the London Underground, for those that don't know, it's the tube system or the subway system in so, London, and one of the oldest, the oldest in the world, actually. Yeah, so it started out with horses, I think, <laughs> uh, around Baker Street, where, you know, Sherlock Holmes lives. Yeah. And I basically, from scratch, put this maintenance, you know, repair and overhaul system for what they call the permanent way, the railway tracks themselves, the stations, all the people, the lifts and escalators, the whole shebang. And whilst I was doing that, I came across a tool called Project Management Workbench. Probably the first time I'd seen some proper project management software. PMW was software that was created, so pre-Microsoft Project, by a company called Deloitte. I got into that, and I ran into some consultants who were putting in a huge corporate project management system, working for a company called Metier, 
who ran a piece of software or pieces of software called Artemis software, which was again huge projects were were run on Artemis, the Channel Tunnel project, the thing that goes that links France and, and England by this sort of 20 mile tunnel running under the English Channel was part of that and and they liked what I was doing so once I'd finished my project I, I moved on to Metier I became a principal consultant in project management implementation and I was placed in the aerospace and defense part of that and my major customers would be AE Systems British Aerospace and Rolls-Royce and I advised and guided them on how to implement their pro- their major projects essentially into the defence business. And it was whilst doing that, came across a product called ISIS, which was the integrated cost and schedule system software, which was a reflection of something that was created in the States, earned value management, or the cost schedule control system criteria, as it was called, CSCSCS, I think, or CSCSC. And I became intrigued by the underlying principle of earned value, and I thought this is probably, possibly the best way to status and manage the delivery of the scope of a project. Why isn't everybody using this? If only we could, because again, we were having difficulty in the UK convincing and Rolls-Royce to use it, let alone the rest of the country. But a, an idea began to form in my mind that I should find out whether government was using earned value to manage and maintain their projects. And so... Firstly, became so intrigued with it that I became unemployable to the extent that I wanted to devote my time to convincing the UK to get to use earned value. Largely, as I said, because it was a fantastic framework to structure a project and then measure its progress in a very detailed way. And the way I did that in those days, I phoned up what was called the National Audit Office. The National Audit Office has a responsibility to audit and assess the value for money given to the taxpayer on all government projects and programmes. Before mobile phones, there was a phone book. You could phone them up. I phoned up and said, I want to talk to somebody about this thing called earned value. Can I speak to somebody? Because I believe it's really going to improve project practice. And miraculously, somebody said, yeah, we'll put you in touch with somebody. And I got a meeting. And I met a couple of guys that were auditing the what was then called the Eurofighter project and the Eurofighter project was a huge fighter plane project coming to fruition in around the mid 90s and it's now called the Typhoon and it's deployed around the world it's in service the what these guys didn't know was that British Aerospace and Rolls-Royce were using earned value but they weren't sharing their information with the audit guys uh, and they couldn't currently had so much what British Aerospace and Rolls-Royce were doing was blinding the auditors the government auditors with as much data and information a blizzard of information trolleyfuls of paper and <laughs> saying go on audit that um, see if you can figure out what the progress on the project is because we're not really going to tell you and I revealed I what's the word I grasped up my customers and said did you know that they were using this method that could tell you almost immediately what the project status was and how well they were doing in terms of cost efficiency you tell the audience customers what earned value means in a nutshell what does it mean in a nutshell well firstly i don't believe it should be called earned value because that gets people thinking about value management and benefits 
It should really be called earned scope. Why? Because what you do is you define your scope and you associate the figure 100%. The, the entire scope of what you're making is worth 100%. And you then track and monitor you in the tiny baby steps that you do when you once you figured out what the entirety of the scope you then build that scope in line with how you've planned it so if i can ask your audience and your customers to visualize an s curve which is the normal way that a project is created or is depicted in summary you've got the s curve and then if underneath it you've got if you can just visualize below that s curve s curve that that's the entirety of the scope and what you've got to do is color that scope in by earning it in little boxes so again do we know lego in in canada yes of course okay well if we can think of the everything if you can think of a wall or rather like pink floyd's album the wall is underneath that s curve in and there are thousands of bricks there each brick contains a little element of the scope and conceptually, those bricks are lined up in a time-phased order, the order in which they need to be made in order to complete the project. And when you've made each of those or filled all, all each of those boxes with the scope that's supposed to be in each of those boxes, you've completed the project. You've earned all the scope, you've earned all the value, but most significantly, whilst you're doing it, at any moment in time, you can see immediately just how much or how many of those boxes you've actually filled up. So you then get this massively powerful way of assessing the progress of the project, assessing the status of the project, and therefore get given great big clues on whether you're ahead or behind schedule in terms of time, or ahead or behind in terms of cost. And that gives you the information that you need to make, again, cliche, informed management risk-based decisions on how you manage that project through to successful Steve, delivery. Steve, we have about four, three minutes before the half time before we take a break, but I just want to summarize what you just said. So in other words, yeah. if you have a $100,000 project and that you've completed 30% of the tasks, but you've spent $80,000, yeah. in other words, you're in deep trouble. You're way over. Exactly. So listen, we're going to take a break, Steve. I can't believe that the time has flown so fast. It hasn't. We have many things to cover. Okay. So we're actually going to play Steve's daughter's performance at the Royal Albert Hall. And oh, it's this, is from, the, this is the Royal Opera House. The sorry. Royal Opera House. Sorry, the Royal yeah. Opera House. And it's Where Shall I Fly? Hercules. And yeah. this is her Stephanie Wick Edwards performing at the Royal Opera House. Steve will be back with you in four or five minutes. Where shall I fly? Oh, <laughs> 
We're back at the Innovation Nation on Career Buzz. I'm your host, Stephen Armstrong. Before continuing with our interview with Steve Wick, I want listeners to know about Innovation Nation archives. Go to amgimanagement.com and select radio show. There are about 115 previous shows on multiple topics, very, very broad topics from engineers and doctors without borders design thinking leadership and innovation creative destruction entrepreneurship just i mean early childhood education multiple topics right across the spectrum so we're back with steve wick and our topic today is if we want our projects to succeed we need to make project management as a function in industry and in companies disappear in other words Steve is arguing that project management is a skill and it should be practiced by every expert in a company, whether it's government, whether it's manufacturing, hospitals, or in your private lives. We all use this skill called project management and we should all learn it. And that is his stance. So Steve, we're back with you. In in part one, Steve, you talked about earned value and as a concept, so we covered that. How did you advance the whole area of project management? You did it really in the UK. I think you created a special interest group. Tell me about that, please. Well, I'll, I'll get to that bit by just filling in what I did when I decided to get Earn Value implemented in the UK. And I did mean implemented in the UK. And um, very quick sequence of events. I saw 
an article on the front of the Guardian newspaper, a big respected broadsheet newspaper in those days, saying that the Public Accounts Committee, the people who pronounce on how we spend our money on behalf of the taxpayer, the government spends its money, <clears throat> had identified the best part of, I think, £700 million worth of waste on projects. And this is in 1994, 93, something like that. And I thought, that's interesting. Who are the Public Accounts Committee? Who drives them? And I discovered that it was the National Audit Office who I went to see who did that. So that's why I went to see the, or got into the National Audit Office. And I thought, if only I could get them to support this. And they were monitoring and looking at the Eurofighter project. And I convinced them that earned value was such a vital thing that for the very first time in history, within the UK, there were four pages about earned value as recommendations for how projects should be managed and structured, going into what was called the VFM report, the Value for Money report for the Audit Office. I also got to see Sir John Bourne, who was at the time the Auditor General, who supported my thing, because I was going to make, a, and I started a sequence of conferences promoting earned value. First one in 1995, I think we're coming up to conference number 29 this year very important engaged people in, in project management. I also, very craftily, I'm not going to tell you how, got two meetings with the Minister for Defence at that time, Michael Portillo, and I pitched earned value at him too. He was very interested and he did what most ministers do, which is he opened up all the doors in the Ministry of Defence who'd been telling me to get lost <laughs> and said, listen to this man, answer his phone calls, and they started to do it. It, was, it began to be implemented. And several years later, Sir John Bourne told me that my efforts within, I think, the first 10 years had saved the best part of £70 million identified. So my work was, in one sense, done in terms of influence. But it continues on, and it, it became mandated in about 2007 in, in the Ministry of Defence. We thought we'd won, but they found ways of not using it properly. But I shall come onto that after I've told you that after three or four years of having had conferences and building the community, because you need an army to take, of interested people in industry above all, and in government oversight organisations to carry these ideas forward. You know, my plan was every project should be managed using earned value, if at all possible. And I d discovered the Association for Project Managers, as it was then, not management, and pitched the idea of forming a SIG, a SIG is a specific interest group. It's a group of people that are supported by the association to basically pursue a specific interest. In my instance, it was earned value. And I said, can I set one of these up? And they said, yes, please. Um, and so I placed all of my connections into that, knowing that an individual on their own cannot take an idea of this magnitude forward on their own and that it would be better supported by a national body, a national professional body. So started to put this group together, which met regularly, month in, month out, grew and grew. It had, again, senior programme directors and project managers from around the UK participating in the elaboration of the documentation and information that was needed to establish earned value as a proper topic, as a proper technical skill to be deployed within projects. And it attracted an awful lot of support. And with that SIG, which I chaired for many years, starting in 1998, 
we grew all the collateral for defining the subject. So we had guidance, a practitioner handbook, aligning it with risk, synchronizing it with estimating, loads and loads of stuff to, to, to support it, and a couple of exams to, to qualify beginners and experienced practitioners. And it was really that force that, that, that drove the application and implementation of its use way beyond the Ministry of Defence. It's used by highways, transportation, power, infrastructure, many large companies. Its use even went into the uh, CERN project, the Hadron the, Collider the, project. The, the what? Need. The CERN, C-E-R-N, the one in, in Europe? That's, that's in right, yes. Yeah. We got to use and value to manage that. They still do. And there's another big project focusing on solar fu nuclear fusion at the moment called the ETER project based in the south of France, which again is a multinational collaboration to try and unleash the power of nuclear fusion, not fission, which is big bang stuff. This is creating massive forces to generate almost well, totally untoxic forces that will replace how we generate electricity in the future. Massive project. If you haven't read about it, do read about it. I T E R. I T E R. I T E R. Yeah. yeah. Um, by the way, Canada is a big player in that. It's been around oh, for quite a long time. But I think so they it, must be members of this group as well. They, we did the first ever project management presentation down there about earned value when we were invited down to the, uh, the site down there too. So the seat became very far reaching, influential, and powerful. And so it had established itself as being very much a, a not about me but about the support of the project management community. And so we struggled on, got this mandate from the MOD and, and then discovered that just because they say that they, just because you've got a mandate doesn't mean to say that they go and do it because they will then find as many excuses as they can not to do it because it was perceived to be a big management overhead, you know, rather than this massively helpful tool to support management and above all to satisfy government and ultimately the citizen and the taxpayer that they were getting proper value for money but we made really good progress and as i suppose grew in stature as the manager of that and influential i grew through the ranks of the apm i ultimately met you i was given responsibility for putting together a group of all the associations and professional bodies that were interested in project management it was called the epmf the engineering project management forum I think you were mechanicals, weren't you, Steve? Yep, and we, we actually met 2001. We met a long time before that through the University of Westminster Business Psychology Master's degree program, if you remember. So, yeah, So the EPM was, was your attempt at bringing together the institution of mechanical mm. engineers, electrical engineers, civil yep. engineers, structural. Yep. Go ahead, yep. tell us what unfolded from that. Well, it was about 16 professional bodies, all, all talking and shit. They were dead in the water. So I was invited to try and... It had been put together, but it had become an old boys talking shop. And I, I was put together to try and re-energise it. And again, just to take to tab back onto... I had to learn how to begin to, how to market project management. And so I became a really good event organiser to the extent that I've organised events in favour of the Olympics at the Albert Hall, and I'm a, a qualified event organiser now. And at the O2, the, uh, the Millennium Dome, I organised a large event with Princess Anne coming along and kicking that off several years ago for and on behalf of the PMI. It was called the, the, the Synergy Sequence of, of, of Projects. So going back to EPMF, we did 16 conferences in about three years, went from strength to strength, actually supported 
that Royal Albert Hall Olympic event and started to get this large network. And I'm afraid that basically how it unfurled was that the more successful it got, the more people wanted a piece of the action. I have to say, the more successful, the more jealousies as well. Yeah. And all the factions and the territorial Fife, the fiefdoms. fighting yeah, yeah. came out and they didn't want to play ball in the end. And so it disintegrated in rancor and acrimony <laughs> uh, or dead silence, really. We just couldn't do another one. But I think I demonstrated <laughs> that I could do events with my eyes shut, really. But because there were always ideas. I think with anything you do, there's always a purpose. And if you can humanize that purpose and capture people's interests, they will come along. Now, Steve, I have to stop you. Exactly, empty room. I have to stop you. With all this, you were there to get, an, it's, it's part of innovation, adoption, to get ideas adopted. In this case, it was earned value, it was project management, it was the whole concept yeah, yeah. of running projects. But there's always resistance that emerges from, from different circles, but you had to try to overcome it. How did you... What methods did, like, for there was also great risk for you to book the Royal Albert Hall. You would have had to put money up for this. Like, I mean, how did yeah. you manage that risk? And was there a downside to that? Yeah, I lost a fortune. It was, it cost an awful lot of money. And again, it was done in spite of the associations rather than on behalf of them. And a couple of associations who I had personal strong relationships with the EPMF members were not supported by their own professional body. So when they went along saying, this is a great event, can you underwrite it or provide some support for it? They were told, no, get lost. And so, you know, I had the, I had the, uh, the financial safety net pulled from under my feet. But being very single-minded, people just, so one description of me is relentless. I believed strongly in the idea. I wasn't doing it for the money. I wanted it, you know, as a real symbolic gesture and also a huge profile raiser to get people to realize that the, the Olympics were predominantly built upon the foundations, not of, of, the, of the foundations that made the event come together. It was a massive project. It was a project of projects. And I wanted everybody in society to realize that it was this combination of civils and mechanicals and all these other professional bodies and the effort that they were putting in that was gonna make this come true. And it was also a great advert for people in the profession. So one of it is, I suppose you could call my relentlessness sheer bloody mindedness because I generally believe in the vision that I, that I put forward. I'm a great believer in having this, as I said, sense of purpose and sense of something to do, which is why I was able, I think, to sustain the SIGs. But we did that event. I lived to fight another day. And as I grew in stature, I grew up through the ranks and I became chairman of the APM. Okay, the, the we, Association for Project Management. Management. Yeah, at that point, about eleven thousand members had been in existence since I think the late seventies, early eighties, and I became its chairman and I led it. We, I inherited a growing organisation that had rebranded itself the Association for Project Management, getting at this. It was a profession. It wanted to seek chartered status, which is a, a badge called a Royal Charter which essentially rubber stamps that you are the professional body responsible for what it says on the tin. And for us, it was project management. You know, the civil engineers, electrical engineers, mechanical engineers, 
the British Computer Society all have their own royal charter, assigning and attributing, if you like, primacy of that particular aspect of, of the national domain. Now, the one problem that I inherited was that the PMI challenged that immediately, our right to, to go for chartered status. And I was in court, in the High Court, for the next five years. So but hold, hold on, were you, were you personally challenged or was the organisational challenged? Well, and personally and organisationally, because I was its chairman and chairman of the board. We were, as an organisation and individuals, in court, challenged by the PMI for the right to go for chartered status. First time it had ever happened in history, apparently. And they fought it for five or six years. When I came, and it had been going on for a while before I joined, I inherited it and I suppose I can now reveal, developed a relationship with Mark Langley, had several peacemaking discussions with him and, and gradually we got to a stage where it was finally avoided but we were £8 million the poorer for it. Who was Mark Langley? I assume that's the project manager. was the chief executive at the time of the PMI. And that's, that's, and that's a, was that, this is a US based organisation, right? Yep. But was this the UK arm of the US-based no, organization? This was the US? Yet. Yes, yeah, the international body for project management, the one that I, you said was founded in 69. Yeah, I find it hard to understand yeah. that well, that would so be allowed. We. I mean... Yeah, so did we. Anyway, we had to go to court. We were in court for five or six years. I was its chairman when we finally got the, the assignation. So again, it was, a, I suppose, a proud moment for me. But during that time, which gave me far more time to <clears throat> attempt to bring about change within the association, two things I tried to do very quickly. One is diversity reared its head. And I said, you know, let's rather than have one page of diversity charter, which many organisations do and think that they've sorted diversity out by having a page of words, I said, let's really put our mouth, money where our mouth with. Firstly, I had got parity on the board with gender for the first time in living memory. I also doubled the membership during my time by making it, I think, more humane and, uh, and approachable as an organisation. But I then went a step further and said, if we want true parity in a gender time, and again, again I've got issues about what diversity really is. I think it's more class-oriented than gen gender, quite frankly. And I suggested that we actually did a rotor, no, a, a what, what's the word? Well, basically a quota system. And I said, let's uh, literally, and we had about 20 branches, 30 SIGs, each with, you know, their memberships. And we said, let's, uh, on, on the management boards of each of those, because they each had a, a management uh, a panel on each of those, I said, let's um, do it 50-50. And let's, you know, absolutely manufacture that so that we've, we've got this. Otherwise, we'll be waiting forever for the organic growth of an inherently conservative organisation to get to these levels of parity. And I lost the argument. They didn't want to play. So that was one thing that I, reg well, I regret that they didn't want to play because that would have taken us forward far more rapidly. But I'd also begin began to think that this project management lark that we do by surrounding it with chartered status, chartered qualifications, was actually a boundary, and it was it was reinforcing the elitist approach of this organisation. I think I could see that... So it was, it was becoming like the engineering institutions? Yes, yeah. It was absolutely everything that we set out to do when we did the rebrand 
to, 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 to the Association for Project Management that we said, and I remember the chairman of the day saying, we will be the very model of a modern professional body and we will not become like those that lot on Great George Street, which is where people like the yeah. civils... And mechanical, sorry. Which meant to me, for the members, by the members, true democracy, if you believe in that, consultation, collaboration, run, you know, run by the members, like I was trying to do within the Sikh community. And we basically, once we got to chartered status, there was a group that thought that they were the masters of the universe. They were set on it being an elite. They thought their pay grade was going to go up massively and that they would be the superhumans that marched in and, and, and hoovered up all of the, the senior project work and that you could only, again, by having APM qualifications, be a project manager. And the more and more I considered this, the more I thought that it was the absolute antithesis of what our professional, our charitable object of us, which was for, for being for the, 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 the public good. And so I began to challenge it. And I said in a meeting of fellows, and this is where I, you know, I came out with the inspired, our role is to be outward facing, not 20,000, because we got to 20,000 members by then, not 20,000 members being catered for for our own needs, but 20,000 evangelists on constant transmit going out to the rest of the world and hoovering in those people to become project managers. And that the major objective, well, step one on the strategy was to get a project manager on every board in the country. But they thought, they thought that it ended there. I said step two was to, once you've got a project manager on every board in the country so that you've really raised the awareness of project management, the next step really was to disappear project management, to make every member of that board a project manager, capable of doing project things, and then to get that trickled down right the way through the organisation. I also suggested at that time that we do a GCSE in project management. Yeah, what's GCS? That's the high school, British high school. That's right. We have these exams called GCSEs. They're aimed at 14 to 16-year-olds, a two-year program of study, at the end of which they take the, the exam. So it's a qualification for a 16-year-old. And I said, look, if we get every child in the UK, get project management on the national curriculum, that's 100,000 children each year coming get, getting a project management qualification. But a, quali- a project management qualification, which is, pa- which is genuinely pan-sector, focusing upon the individual, really going for the use of project management as a life skill, as a problem-solving set of skills. And what did my APM say to me? Too difficult, not interested. Okay, So they've continued with their, what they call educational outreach. Basically, educational outreach means going to on membership campaigns to universities, academies, those sorts of institutions, and often doing a focus on project management because mum or dad happens to be a governor of that particular school. So well-meaning, worthy, but piecemeal and sporadic, like little drips on a piece of blotting paper. I wanted to have something that would explode the blotting paper. So what you didn't mention is that I had also been hassled by somebody from EPMS days, from the Charter Management Institute, to join something called the Guild of Educators. Now, the guilds in London are the old-fashioned medieval guilds that ran the City of London from the 1100s onwards, or even before. So if you were a, a, a mechanical person or a blacksmith or a, you, you dealt in ma- weaving lamb or a tanner or something like that, you had a guild. And these guilds have been around for a long time. And, and they still are, and they formed the City they and Guilds are. Institute. 
That's right. So they, 25 years ago, the youngest guild was for, or one of the youngest guilds, the educators. And so I was approached to join the Guild of Educators because of all the work I'd done on creating these professional documents and how-to guides for project management. And we said, would you join us? Because you're not your classical educator in the sense that you're not a retired teacher or a headmaster or headmistress. Come and join and bring your address book and your connections to industry and commerce with you. And I said, OK. And again, I suggested that they we do. I got to meet the head of education as a result of this of the City of London. And I went in and pitched at her the idea of a GCSE. And she said, no, it isn't. It's fusion skills. It's something that we're working with within the City of London and the and OECD. And these are skills that we want to bring into the curriculum of all school children, beginning with the City of London, on a huge programme that we're working on. And what was really neat was that the behavioural skills of project management that I described to her were an almost perfect match for these things that they were calling fusion skills, for which read transferable skills. Right, tell us, now, Steve, before you go, just give us some of those specific skills. Fusion I will, because they're, because they're also the top 12 employability skills, right? And that's where you get this bridge between learning and earning. Right, oral communication is number one. Oral communication and presentation skills. Collaboration and teamwork. Initiative, problem solving. Organisational skills like planning, time management, deadlines. Adaptability and flexibility. Written communication. Independent working and autonomy. Critical thinking. Resilience. Creativity and analysis and evaluation skills. And if that's not a fantastic set of skills to carry through life, I couldn't think. I just want to stop you and say again that in North American universities, I'm not <laughs> sure about the UK, but in North American and engineering schools specifically, they call those the soft skills. Yeah. In some ways, in a derogatory way, yeah, I mean, but, they yeah. realize that those soft skills are important, but in some ways, they're yeah. sort of the easy skills, but you yeah. and I know in the real world, they're the hard skills. They're very hard, but they're the key skills. Yep. Uh, imagine something called a T, a T model, a letter yeah. T. And if you put all these soft skills on the horizontal of what I'm trying to do, and what this project is trying to do, this, this initiative with the City of London and OECD, is to define better and assess better what every person's soft skill set is, fusion skill set is, and then have vertical struts of technical specialisms. So it could be estimating, it could be it could be engineering, it could be accounting, it could be finance, advertising, marketing. But the overarching thing is the behavioural capabilities of the individual. And you can begin to look at those and assess them from the age of 70 and take them lifelong learning right the way to the age of 70. So I got involved in it to the extent that we are attempting to create a system that explains this fully and integrates it with, techni with, with technical skills, okay? So I'm working within the Cabinet Office, the Infrastructure and Projects Authority of Government, <clears throat> currently looking at estimating skills and blending them in with these fusion skills into a pilot project, which ultimately will be linked into the civil services government skills register. Every civil servant has their skills noted, but not in this way. And we're hoping that this will seed the development of being able to attach other uh, technical skills onto that. Steve, we have the full support Steve. of the Cabinet Office to do this, as well as the, the, the London livery. Steve, unfortunately, we're finished. You sound like... 
a politician, actually. You sound like a man on a mission. <laughs> and when I met you 25 <clears throat> years ago, you were a man on a mission then just to get project management yeah. adopted. And now you're into getting the, the whole lifelong learning concept adopted. But Steve, we're done. We literally have only one minute left. So I have ah. to shut I have to shut this down. We'll have a part two and focus <clears throat> on the current state of what you're doing. Yeah. So Steve, thank you so much. Very happy. It's been unbelievable. Okay. <laughs> the pace at which we've moved. But thank you so much. Pleasure. You've been listening to Innovation Nation on Career Buzz, Canada's unique radio conversation empowers lives and riches careers and energizes organizations on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm Stephen Armstrong. If you have comments on today's show or questions about the show, email me at sarmstrong at AMGI Management. Thanks to my guest, Steve Wick. If we want our projects to succeed, we need to make project management disappear. An MP3 of this will be available on AMGI website and on CIUTFM 90.3 website. Thank you very much. CIUT 89.5 FM, the sound of your city. Stream us anytime at www.ciut.fm.